Hello and welcome to Business Unmuted, a new regular feature on the North Eastern Yorkshire Business Network on LinkedIn, as well as on YouTube and available as a downloadable podcast. After almost a year of video conferencing and working remotely, it's time for business to be unmuted. Aren't we sick of seeing people who are still on mute? Well, in this first episode, I'll be speaking to five sector leaders on one of this year's hot topics, the environment and the green agenda and what it means for business. This is the year of COP26 to be held in Glasgow in autumn, a conference that will see the global agenda on climate change absolutely front and centre. Earlier uh, this month, I caught up with the Right Honourable Anne-Marie Trevelyan MP, who, as well as being Minister of State for Business, Energy and Clean Growth, is the government's COP26 international champion for adaptation and resilience. I first asked her what exactly COP26 is. COP26 is the 26th conference of the parties, that's what it stands for, took me a while to work that out, Uh, to the United Nations Framework Convention uh, on Climate Change, known as UNFCCC. Um, It's also known more colloquially as the UN Climate Change Conference. Um, So heads of state will join uh, around 30,000 delegates, uh, ranging from negotiators, scientists, experts, business leaders, and of course campaigners to agree a kind of coordinated action to tackle climate change. So this is the first time that the UK has hosted um, the annual uh, event and it's taking place in Glasgow uh, from the 9th to 20th of November this year. So this is of course a massive opportunity for the UK uh, in a year when there really is unprecedented support among the public for action. Uh, but the challenge is that the entire world has actually got to act together if we're going to accelerate action to reduce emissions, to protect our environment and adapt to the consequences that we are seeing all over the world, those climate shocks which are happening more and more often. Uh, And the UN UN climate change process um, is central to that collective action. So across the UK, um, we've all got an important role to play in the successful delivery of COP26. um, And we're gonna be holding events across all four nations um, and are working really closely, obviously with Glasgow City Council to deliver an amazing event. But in many ways, the event is critically important, but it's actually the building block for how the world genuinely does its business differently going forwards if, if we're to crack this uh, climate emergency. It is a big deal for Britain that we've got the presidency, and, and, and it has been a bit of a big deal for you because you were given a, a special role. Tell us about your role and what the presidency's aims are for what they call adaptation and resilience. Fundamentally, uh, my role is to represent the COP26 presidency in the sense, you know, the UK as the president to drive forward and represent our high ambitions uh, and our leadership on adaptation and resilience. So um, adaptation and resilience is one of the three pillars of of the COP uh, machinery. There's mitigation. So what are you doing as a nation to help, uh, you know, stop putting greenhouse gases uh, into the atmosphere, you know, becoming more um, heading towards net zero. Uh, There's the finance peace, if you like, the the financing of all these things, uh, private money, public money, and all that. And then there's the adaptation pillar. um, And that's about how do we, and indeed every other nation, alter the way we live in order to protect ourselves from climate shock so that our citizens and our uh, environment and the natural world are protected and resilient to the changes that even if we manage to wipe out greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, Uh, We have created what I always described as like an extra thick blanket with all the CO2 we've been emitting around the planet, which is warming us up. And that has a a lag time 
even if we were managed to stop them all any more now, are probably well over 100 years. So the impacts of climate shocks are coming, uh, whether we crack greenhouse gas emissions now or, you know, by 2050, which is the challenge. Well, it was good to talk to Anne-Marie Trevelyan uh, earlier, but joining me on the line now to discuss what she had to say and other elements of this important agenda are David Moore, who's the CEO of the British Constructional Steel Association. Hello, David. Uh, Andrew Fulton, uh, who is the Vice President and General Manager of ICL Bulby on the East Coast. Hello, Andrew. Uh, Ian Wardle, who's the CEO of Housing Association 13. Hello, uh, Ian. Uh, Sharon Lane, Managing Director of Tees Components. And Alex Hinchcliffe, who's the head of EV charging infrastructure at the facilities uh, firm uh, Fulcrum. Uh, They install these networks uh, to get uh, EV charging and other green uh, agenda things to our homes and our offices and factories. Right, well, first of all, let's start by talking about what Anne-Marie said about the COP26 agenda. What should you think the priorities for the UK government be in in the coming year and going forward from COP26? Let's just start with uh, Andrew. We're very excited that uh, the UK is hosting uh, this event Uh, Our own USP for our site is connected to the green economy. Um, So we enjoy the fact that there's going to be a fantastic platform from which we can can promote uh, what we do, encourage others, uh, and as a whole and as as a sector, uh, inform uh, the public uh, what is already taking place. Uh, On the back of uh, the government's commitment through COP, we'd really like to know uh, how the government is putting together the UK's own strategy and in particular how the the government are going to ensure that all stakeholders are engaged in the development of that strategy, particularly those from the unique sectors such as uh, fertiliser business, uh, which are not typically associated uh, uh, in uh, in greenhouse emissions, uh, but play a part in that. Um, We're feeding the world, uh, we've got an increasing population, we need to make sure we increase yields, but without um, increasing the demand on, 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 uh, on emissions uh, and on the environment with regards to how we might load that with further uh, carbon, uh, uh, carbon and greenhouse emissions. OK, let's talk to the Constructional Steel Association. How do you think your priorities should align with the government's when it comes to COP26 and climate change? Uh, thank you, Graham. Uh, in terms of what I think the actual government should actually be doing for climate change, it has to recognise that uh, steel is actually one of the major constructional and industry materials, and it will remain so going forward. It is actually going to take some time for the industry to decarbonise, going from where we are at the moment to introduce things like carbon capture and storage, things like electric arc furnaces, is going to take some time. And industry needs to be to be there, needs to be profitable, needs to be viable to actually do that. It also needs incentives, I think, from government and grants from government to actually build some of the largest investments, I think, in the steel industry for a decade. Uh, So I think from government, we need more incentives, more grants going forward. Ian, what about the living environment? Yeah, I mean, it's very much our agenda that all our customers should have a safe, warm and quality home. Um, And the announcement yesterday from the government around the future home standard, I think, is setting out a very important marker. You know, they did the consultation only in October and already we've got the results of that consultation yesterday and a commitment to accelerate... um, all new homes being net carbon zero by 2025. And we've got to have transitional arrangements in by 2023, which is a huge commitment. And there's a lot of cost involved in that, but that is being reflected in in the grant that's available from government. 
And obviously for existing homes, um, for us that's 39,000 properties, we've got to decarbonize all our homes for customers by, uh, by 2050. And I think it's just good to see that they're, they're starting bit by bit to give us more detail about how this can happen. Um, and more importantly, the opportunity to pilot initiatives so we can get some of the costs down and we get the economies of scale, I think is really welcome. OK, we'll explore some of those themes in the coming minutes. But before we do that, let's have a quick consideration of the legacy of the Paris Agreement, which, which I suppose put the emphasis on developed countries like our own to decarbonise. But then, of course, developing countries ran their own industries the old way. And maybe we just shift climate uh, change and emissions of climate uh, carbon gases from one part of the world to another part of the world. I mean, Andrew, you've got these innovative way of developing fertilizer. It, it does no good if you develop that and then uh, a developing country sets up a fertilizer plant that uses as much carbon as was used by you in the first place. Or, or Sharon, similarly, you run a, a steel and, and, and manufacturing business that consumes energy and you do it efficiently and move somewhere else. Comments on that, Andrew, Sharon, first Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the production of fertilizer isn't isn't a isn't a unique skill uh, just to the UK, uh, and as you say, it's it, it's produced around the world through various different means. Um, we we um, uh, have ourselves identified ways in which we can reduce that, um, and by virtue of the fact that we we mine a very um, carbon neutral uh, product. Um, very, very low in its carbon footprint uh, by virtue of uh, its very limited processing uh, and it's naturally occurring. But not everybody is blessed uh, with, those, uh, uh, with those minerals. Uh, but I think that the one influence that we can exert uh, globally is uh, customer choice. Uh, it's a clear labeling uh, and information uh, available to customers. So when they are purchasing a food, uh, purchasing a product, they're informed uh, about the impact that that choice has had on the world. Uh, and that would continue to encourage those that are uh, accessing themselves new markets, developing uh, their, 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 their markets, uh, to consider uh, that question, that paradigm that the customers uh, are developing uh, by, uh, by making the right choices. Andrew, you heard Anne-Marie's uh, uh, objectives for COP26, but of course that objective is about where we are today. How do you accurately look at where we're going to be tomorrow and set policy for such the for such a long term? And she makes such a great uh, statement about and reminder that what already exists itself is a challenge. Um, so we need to improve radically uh, to address the carbon that is sitting in the in the environment today. Uh, but let's not lose sight of the fact that the population of the world is growing, and it's po the population are the ones that consume and consume the goods uh, that generate uh, uh, those emissions and that impact. Uh, so it, it feels like we're going to have to run fast just to stand still, and then faster again uh, to improve. Uh, it's, it's, it's a hell of a task. Um, it, you've heard it's, it, it's, it's one we're all up for, um, but we, we mustn't be, be shy of the, the need to radically improve. It's a very good point. Sharon, what, what are your thoughts on the specifics of your industry? Um, because you've obviously had massive international competition, and I suppose that 
the Paris, Paris Climate Change Agreement has helped your competitors in that respect? Yeah, I, I think that um, I understand completely that, that view that you've presented there. I think that um, as a manufacturing SME, um, we've set out at the start of this year um, what we can do as a business um, to work towards net zero ourselves and the changes that we can make to be able to do that. Asking um, SMEs to do that at a time of, of obvious other economic pressures um, is always going to come up against some opposition. And I think I'd just um, refer back to Anne-Marie Trevelyan's comments about the role that leadership can play here um, within the business community and the impact that we can have. Um, I think that view that you presented about um, you know, it's quite disheartening sometimes, I think, to say, well, what's the point in trying to keep my corner of the swimming pool clean, really? Uh, you know, but we, we are one small world now, you know, and I think that it, it's really clear the influence that we can have um, in the UK. Um, it's looking, you know, very positive now in terms of what the US is going to do in terms of rejoining um, the climate agreement. Mm. And I think that we've got a real opportunity here to stand up as leaders, even in relatively small businesses and say, actually, this matters. We can influence and we can influence our young people and we can lead the way even by tiny changes, incremental changes that will that will take us towards that goal. And folks, I know that uh, Sharon's put her money where her mouth is because she's become a member of the government task force on this matter, haven't you, Sharon? Well done. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and I think, you know, in terms of what the, the priority for the UK should be, it's really about, you know, looking at how we can maximise this opportunity now for a green recovery. OK, before I bring the others in, have you got one point to make on this, David? I think Sharon's right. The actual uh, the point about leadership and influencing uh, not just actually UK manufacturers, but the rest of the world is something that BCSA takes very seriously. Uh, we've actually developed a sustainability charter for all uh, steelwork contractors, which actually requires them to measure, to start measuring their own carbon footprint. Once you actually know where you are, you can start to say where you're actually going to get to. We've also got commitments in the actual charter for steelwork contractors to reduce their carbon footprint year on year. So we can actually get down to the actual net zero target by 2050. But not only that, we're actually looking at where we buy our steel from. We will buy our steel from steelwork manufacturers that have published a, a roadmap themselves to, 20, uh, to 2050 net zero, net zero carbon. I think that's important to say that we're not just looking at steel in this country, we're looking at steel abroad as well. OK, well, let's just change to another element of things, and that's the, the green infrastructure that we have in Britain and how we can improve that green infrastructure. We'll talk about motor vehicles in a minute because that's the sort of sexy thing that a lot of people focus on. But actually, we live in a green infrastructure, don't we, Ian, from 13 homes? If you live in a home in, that you manage and own, you want to make them as green as possible. What, what are your priorities and how are you going about it? I mean, there's already been quite tough environmental standards for some time, so we've had to get to an EPC level of C um, within the next few years. And thankfully, most of our properties we've invested in, and they, they do already have a good level of energy efficiency. So we've set out a few targets. The first is that as an organisation, we want to be net carbon zero by 2035. And we have an action plan that was signed off by our board. Uh, last year, and that's got quite, some quite aggressive targets. And then, and then some areas will actually be net zero by um, 2030. It's then really the existing housing stock and how we decarbonize that. We've been piloting a lot of different techniques, different technologies. We've got lots of different types of buildings. Um, and the great thing is that the unit costs are coming down. People are collaborating. Um, I think there's a huge potential for new businesses to be created through this. 
um, and create jobs within the economy. And then there's new build as well. So, um, you know, huge, huge, huge importance for, for the local economy, construction and, and the supply chain. Um, and, you know, the government is really tightening up its ambitions, which are, are to be really welcomed to make sure that, you know, there's, there's no fossil fuels in new homes by 2025, which is, you know, they've, they've said they would do it and they've done it. And I think it's to be really applauded. Give me um, some. Give me some practical examples of the kind of yeah. things that have been ongoing, because you've had this vast uh, investment programme, hundreds of millions of pounds. Tell us the kind of things you've been spending on that are making <coughs> this tangible difference. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, we, we have a fabric first approach, which is about insulation, but also what's up, um, it's, it's not making them um, airtight. They still have to have a really good um, level of um, ventilation. Um, the tricky thing for us is we've got 120 different building typologies from 1970s to, to, to terrace houses. So we've been trying different approaches based on um, um, different house types and how they were built. Um, so it's everything from photovoltaic panels, air source heat pumps, ground source heat pumps, um, trying to get the running costs and that thermal efficiency to, to be the best that it can. So, you know, we've had a couple of pilots recently in Middlesbrough and the annual running costs are getting down to £110 per home on a 1970s bungalow that we've been recommended. Um, £110 for what, a day, a month, a week? A year to run it. £110 a year? Yeah. Right. So, wow. <laughs> the, the, the costs... You know the the fabric cost, the insulation, the windows, the the heat pumps are coming down year on year, um, and you know you're getting a very good quality home. Our issue is we've got a lot to do. I mean, it's it's hundreds of millions we need to invest. So it's just getting that, that sequencing and that balance right. OK, let's bring Alex in, because obviously if you've got homes, people have cars, they park cars, and we want the cars to move to uh, zero uh, pollution. Of course, the uh, internal combustion engines are being phased out. Alex, what is your business doing to make sure that people who have cars don't need internal combustion engines? Well, we're supporting as many different industries as, as we can to, to, to help them with their net zero ambitions. That's a big ambition of, of Fulcrums is, to, is to, to, to power this net zero transition in, in however many different forms possible. So we supply industrial and commercial and large-scale residential, but also SMEs as well, um, with new connections and, and uh, the, the availability to bring the technologies uh, such as EV charging, such as PV and other forms of generation and, and battery storage into these smart grid environments, whether that's in the home or whether that's in industry. Um, and we connect it all together and, 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 and make it work for business to reduce the total cost of ownership of their fleet, which obviously is a, an additional benefit to, to the green transport sector, that it's, it's obviously it's cheaper to run those vehicles once you get going. There is a, a, an outlay in the first instance, but once you get going, um, then not only is it improving environmental and decarbonisation, but it's also lowering the, the total cost of managing these fleets. Now, you've got, uh, obviously, uh, going for electric, uh, but there are other ways of transmitting fuel. We don't know how hydrogen f fuel will work with uh, with motor vehicles. Electric is the way to go at the moment. Do you think you can future-proof the choices for decarbonised transport? Yes, to some extent. Um, we're certainly looking at uh, the existing gas uh, pipeworks that we've got to support um, transportation of hydrogen. Um, I think hydrogen will definitely have a role to play, particularly in 
long distance or, or heavy commercial vehicles, haulage vehicles, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, where there's perhaps a, a more suited business case in terms of uh, how far they can run on that particular fuel source. I think the the more modern uh, electric forecourts will diversify again and incorporate elements of hydrogen in the same way that there's petrol and diesel fuels today. Um, and you know there, there, may, there may be split split sites for slightly different technologies, but I think there's a uh, there's a roadmap for both technologies. However, battery technology I think is the forerunner on the basis that it integrates into the home, it integrates into the business. It um, you can harness energy from the sun through solar store it into battery and, and, and then push it into the car as and when required or you can direct charge from solar or you can push energy back into the grid none of those things you can do with hydrogen but nevertheless um fulcrum is very much of the opinion that we need to be at the forefront of understanding today and tomorrow and, and making sure we're in a, in a good place to to be able to deliver whatever pipe work or electrical work or cabling is, is required to support business and to support industry and to support housing. Uh, Ian, when it comes to a new housing development, I know you were talking about retrofitting and older houses that you have, but you also do new housing developments. Do you consider the difference between, uh, or the importance of having both the choice for electric and hydrogen, because hydrogen might be powering boilers soon as well? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking at a pilot around hydrogen um, boilers, but it very much depends on the infrastructure so the, the ones in terms of new build we're looking at more is, is, is the elect electrical supply and electrical capacity because it, it probably will either be from a battery or a, um, an air source heat pump. But we are looking seriously in a number of our developments that we already had um, charging points in and it might be something that we just do as standard for all our homes. Um, just, you know, just, just building it into our costs um, just because I think there's an expectation. I mean, you've probably seen the figures just in the last year, how many more people are buying an electric car. People are really switching and thinking about it. So we have to think about it in terms of the saleability or the rentability of our homes. Okay. Let's uh, look at another element of this uh, green agenda now, and that's the export of products that are green. Andrew, you touched on it earlier by uh, talking about the importance of knowing uh, the full uh, destination, sorry, the full uh, gestation of a product and its climate change impact. Um, but when it comes to exporting uh, our high-end green products, whether it be fertiliser or, or other things, do you think that maybe there's a role to play from our development budget to make sure we can get those products to developing countries? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I, I think fortunately, as the UK, we have that infrastructure in place. Uh, we have representatives around the world uh, that are available to connect uh, UK companies uh, to uh, the right people in country uh, when developing a new market, uh, opening up conversations, understanding what's meaningful in that particular region. Um, so fortunately, it's, it, it, in the UK, we, we have that and it's it's very it's very helpful to use it. Uh, Department of International Trade, Trade are, are phenomenal in that regard. Um, it's challenging in the fertilizer market when we're dealing with very traditional methodologies mm. uh, of agriculture in most parts of the world, um, uh, where people uh, are primarily rewarded on yield, uh, and yield is the big question. How are we going to feed more people um, as as uh, population grows, another two billion people over the next twenty years, uh, increase of seventy percent yields? Um, doing that though consciously uh, will be a challenge. Um, we certainly hope that that consciousness will be shared through uh, the aspirations of COP, 
uh, and the lights and, and filter down to, to consumers globally that will then, then influence. But we, um, we, we do publish um, our, uh, uh, our carbon footprint. Uh, we inform people uh, of its uh, multi-nutrient and organic uh, characteristics. And uh, that has been very helpful to, to penetrate new markets. Uh, we're entering into uh, South America uh, on that platform uh, where uh, uh, access to that market is being leveraged on the fact that it is this uh, 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 nutrient, uh, organic, uh, slow-releasing fertilizer, and those USPs are what are penetrating that particular market. So we've seen early, uh, early signs of success. Um, and uh, we just continue to reinforce that point. So the fact that there's international dialogue uh, helps us uh, promote what we have, uh, but also we see it as, uh, uh, um, as, as an important role for us to take on uh, to encourage others um, and to grow on that green platform because we've seen the benefits of it. I'm sure other others can. Uh, the change for others will be a lot more challenging, um, but certainly um, it will take one to lead others and we do hope that others will follow. But absolutely, back to the, the question about uh, the role that the UK have. Uh, they're already doing a phenomenal job in making those introductions and ensuring that there is an infrastructure in place for companies entering new markets to start the conversations off with the right people uh, 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 when you set foot in a, in a, in a new market. That's fantastic uh, explanation, particularly the USP of some of this uh, uh, new technology. Because effectively, although it, it's a natural product you're doing, the, the methodology of getting it out and getting it to market efficiently is new. There's innovation there, isn't there, Andrew? Uh, and David and Sharon, I know that you are very proud that there's a lot of innovation in what you do. Sharon, very specifically, because you do some very high-end manufacturing. But your sector, David, is innovative. Um, do you think that some of the things that uh, Andrew is saying, the efficacy of the uh, climate, uh, um, the climate change uh, considerations, should be used as a USP now? I think it should, but I also think that uh, we shouldn't actually forget that uh, UK industry has lots of skills, lots of expertise that are actually valued worldwide. In fact, BCSA does have a number of steward contractor members that actually provide infrastructure and buildings for what used to be the ex-Commonwealth countries. Mm. And they, those people actually see British industry as being the best in the world. And I think we should actually use that uh, USP as well as that green USP to actually promote industry around the world. Also, with steel, with, when you're building a building, it's not just there for that single building. It has a reuse and recycling potential that can, that can be used for many more years. And that can be used to actually reduce the, the energy and the uh, greenhouse effects in actually building buildings of the future. And there is a whole industry that's emerged now around recycling steel, isn't there? And you, you're starting to see many tens of millions of tonnes of recycled steel entering the international markets. I certainly think that in the future we might actually see far more refurbishment actually in town centres rather than actually new buildings. And we'll have the concept of urban mining where you're actually looking at existing buildings and seeing, rather than demolishing them, how you can actually recycle some of the actual elements of that building to produce new buildings of the future. Sharon, with some of the specific products uh, you are developing and, and, and manufacturing, they are very high-end manufactured. But do you think about a recyclability before they're delivered to market? Recyclability of the products, yeah, I mean that's something that we we work with OEMs on their on their product design, and mainly from a design for manufacture perspective. Um, but I know that their recyclability is something that's um, increasingly high on their agenda um, through that process. Um, 
I'd echo David's comments really about um, the reputation of um, British engineering and products overseas, and that's certainly been our experience. And I think um, going back to this question of resilience for businesses, um, there's been um, many issues, as you know, and some of our businesses have been directly affected by um, the effects of climate change, for example, severe flooding. And we can expect that to continue, um, as Anne-Marie Trevelyan said, over the next 100 years, um, even if we stop uh, the damage, if you like, right now. Um, we've seen a lot of innovation in terms of products for flood prevention and flood defences. And I think that that's certainly an area that I'd um, ask government to consider looking at in terms of additional funding to really try to drive that innovation and, and be able to help businesses to adapt to the new climate that we can expect to see. But equally, that then provides opportunities to export um, that expertise and, that, and those products um, to other parts of the world who might suffer even more than we do in terms of flooding impact. When Anne-Marie was talking, she talked about mitigation, which is what you were just talking about, Sharon. Uh, she also talked about adaptation, getting these products out around the world. But then it was finance. That was the other element. Now, when it comes to funding some of these schemes, they're not automatically, at first iteration, commercially viable. Um, Alex, you've been involved in a developing sector, getting these electric car chargers in and infrastructure for hydrogen and other, other uh, more climate-friendly forms of energy. Uh, how do you see the funding going forward and, and has the way the government's approached it so far worked? Yeah, look, I think um, there's, there's obviously been a lot of recent publicity about the funding that, that is available or going to be made available soon. Um, the way that that is distributed is not necessarily as clear as it could be and how uh, industry and SMEs could potentially make use of some of that funding. A lot of it's distributed through central government and then through local government through council initiatives and not really um, distributed to encourage the uptake of local businesses to, to, to decarbonize and change what they're doing. And yet the government expects the, the transition to be led by industry. And I think a couple of people have made points already about the challenges that we've got with the economy uh, suffering with COVID, with Brexit and, and other impacting forces that mean asking business to find additional money to start transitioning to decarbonisation strategies is a, is a big ask. Um, certainly when you're looking at grid infrastructure for large scale uh, fleet transition projects in the likes of London, um, businesses are expected to look at upstream reinforcement, which is phenomenally expensive and just makes projects uh, non-viable before they even start. Um, and, and like you also said, you know, the, the technologies are expensive as well. We talked about export. I think there's an opportunity to export, to, to harness energy generation in the UK. And a lot of the energy generation in the UK um, is being lost because we don't have an opportunity to harness it properly. If battery technology becomes cheaper, we can harness it, we can then export it. We've got massive opportunities for hydro, for wind generation. There's been a lot of investment in solar. So. Step by step, I think we can get there, but there needs to be much clearer guidelines on, on how we can access some of the funding that's available and distribute it through more accessible channels. Let's pick that last point up because uh, there's an element of levelling up uh, that the government has uh, put forward as its agenda. And in the northeast, particularly on the east coast, there is 
opportunity for massive projects to build our offshore wind farms on Doggerbank. We've also got manufacturers who might be contributing to the uh, building of tra train infrastructure, transport infrastructure. Uh, so does the government's levelling up agenda and the funding needed for some of these big projects come together? David, how do you see that? Uh, I'm sorry, Graham, you're going to get me on my hobby horse here. Uh, the issue of levelling up, I think the, the government has actually done a very poor job. Uh, I, I refer to things like HS2, uh, where HS2 actually has, as part of that, a significant number of steel bridges and steel structures. And the lion's share of the actual steel bridges, given this is public money, has actually gone to uh, overseas companies. I mean, we have some large, very competent people in this country, large companies, who are more than capable of designing and fabricating these bridges. I don't understand why the government's actually giving the, the, the benefit of uh, public money to actually overseas companies. They seem to be levelling up the French economy, not the actual northern economy in the UK. And, and there are other projects where they've taken a different approach. They've taken a different approach on wind farms where they've had targets, haven't they, for content from the UK, and maybe not so much on some of the big infrastructure. Certainly with Dogger Bank, uh, the target there was to have 60% uh, of the actual work done by British companies. There is no such target, I think, with HS2. Uh, certainly you get weasel words from the government like uh, there's no uh, target in place to actually place the actual uh, the work with UK companies. Uh, it's just a appalling that the UK government should actually be placing large parts of public money with actually overseas companies. Okay, Sharon, I think... Sorry, you know, David, I think we got your point there. Well, well I, was, I was saying, I think the government should have in place a commitment to actually place most of this actually work with UK companies. Okay. And Sharon, when it comes to what uh, Alex was saying, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the opportunities for some of this uh, more advanced technology to be, to be made here and the levelling up agenda, funding, levelling up, and the commitment to green environment, if we can build them together then we've got some big wins, haven't we? Yes, absolutely. But I, I agree with everything David said. And, and to be honest, even where there've been um, uh, the local content stipulations, such as the 60%, you do tend to find that that is taken up by very local civil works. And actually, uh, mechanical work, for example, just is not included in that. And that's a real missed opportunity because we have so much expertise uh, here in the Northeast, particularly, but but UK wide, um, to actually be supporting some of those UK designers and manufacturers. So I'd completely echo what he said. And I think that there just isn't enough knowledge and understanding within government of what we can do. You know, what, what we can do as a region and also what we can do as a sector. And it's really important if they're serious about levelling up that they, they start to understand that. I'm hoping that things like the um, the Green Jobs Task Force that I'm, I'm involved in will help to get some of that across because that is about these are genuine jobs that will be created. They'll be created in the next 18 months for the green recovery and they'll be created over the next 10 to 15 years for the long term net zero target. And, and they're genuinely opportunities and, and it's all about what we need to put into place to make sure that those jobs can actually emerge and, and be filled. So it, it's just a, a sense of frustration, really, that there are so many opportunities there. As you say, it could all come together. And I just really hope that we get that engagement and listening from, from central government to be able to achieve that. 
I'm going to give the last word on this to Ian Wardle because I suppose, listening to what David and Sharon were saying there, your sector has perhaps got it a little bit more organised, hasn't it? Housing associations which have money that comes from Homes England with criteria set on uh, regulation for uh, uh, the carbon footprint of a property, that it is more straightforward to follow the money and to deliver the levelling up as well as the carbon agenda. Yeah, they're very strict metrics, um, you know, and that and that that's a good example of you know combined leadership that it's the right thing to do, but the government supported that, and also there are there are metrics around how how much we should spend in the local economy. Nearly eighty percent of everything that we invest goes to a Teak Valley company. We're really really careful on that. We report that to our board. We report that to our investors. I think what's really interesting is investors look at those types of things when they're pricing your money and there's a new entrance into the market and they're looking at your impact on the local economy and they're looking at your environmental credentials and how much carbon you have in your organization um, and i think those things combined will really really help with getting more money in the local economy in the north well, look, thank you very much, David, Andrew, Ian, Sharon and Alex for joining us on this business unmuted discussion on COP26.